1: Chances
2: are you've heard of the big three consulting firms known as MBB, McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group and Bain.
3: And chances are, if you've heard of them recently, it hasn't been positive. Bain has come under fire. Bain South Africa has withdrawn its membership from business leadership South Africa and apologised for inflicting damage on the South African revenue services.
2: BCG has been criticised for its ties to Mohammed bin Salman
3: and also advising controversial politicians in Angola.
1: This article focuses on the role of US firms in helping her build and park that fortune abroad, including renowned firms like the Boston Consulting Group.
4: And McKinsey, well, it's probably received the worst headlines of all recently.
1: It's been accused of encouraging
2: insurers to slash claims payouts to poor households
3: and also from profiting from ill-gotten contracts with state-owned companies in South Africa. McKinsey's new
4: global head has apologized to South Africans for work the firm did with friends of former President Jacob Zuma. And don't forget the allegations that it helped opioid manufacturers peddle their products to the addicted.
1: Documents show that McKinsey created
2: a roadmap for these drug companies to, quote, turbocharge, end quote, opioid sales. Some of the advice McKinsey provided is absolutely shocking beyond belief. Does the business of advice need some better advice? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Alice Fullwood. I'm Simea Keynes. And in this week's episode, can the management consulting industry be reformed?
3: First, we'll look at the current state of the business.
5: The total combined revenues of the top three players in the industry, so that's BCG, Bain and McKinsey, has doubled in the past five years alone. And those three firms, they now employ something like 70,000 people between them.
4: Then, we'll speak with the authors of a new book about what they say were failures at the most prestigious consultancy, McKinsey.
0: It should be also easy for McKinsey consultants to understand the reputational risks they take on when they work for bad actors. It doesn't take a Rhodes Scholar to figure that out. And we'll ask, does the industry really need to exist at all?
2: Hey, Samira and Alice.
3: Hey, Mike. Hiya.
2: I'm curious, did either of you ever consider a career as a management consultant?
3: I did not actually. My perception at university was always that if you were smart and interested in business and finance, and you know generally well-intentioned, uh, you went into management consulting. And if you were smart, into business and finance, and sort of slightly Machiavellian in nature, you went into investment banking. So uh, I did the latter for my sins.
4: Yeah, that's a hard no from me. Uh, my dream was always to become a very nerdy and very badly paid economist.
2: Yeah, yeah, I can't say it's sprung up for me, although I've always thought there's something a little bit similar between being a business journalist uh, that we sort of share with management consultants. You sort of get a view across different companies and regulators and government that it's hard to get if you only work in one of them. Thankfully, we have someone who's recently joined The Economist and can tell us all about the glamorous world of PowerPoints and cases. Tom Lee Devlin, who is also the author of our story this week, looking at the state of the industry. Tom, hello. Hi, Mike. Uh,
5: Thanks so much for having me on the show today. Really excited to be here.
2: Welcome to the podcast and welcome to The Economist as well. Um, I know you are most recently at Bain, which is great since you have a ton of insight into the industry generally, but it also means you can't quite talk about your time there yet. So why don't we start with what made you want to get into management consultancy in the first place? Yeah, so for, for
5: a wide-eyed undergraduate like me, I, I think there are a lot of things to really like about consulting. It's a great place to learn about the world of business from the inside. You do really have quite a substantial influence as well over, over CEOs and, and other decision makers in, in both the, the private and the public sector. It's also a, a well-trodden path to bigger and, and better things, Mike. So if you look at the CEO of Alphabet or the CEO of Nike or Coca-Cola, All of them started their careers in in the industry. Uh, And it's also an industry that's been experiencing tremendous amounts of growth, which makes
2: it an exciting place to be. So, Tom, if we go back a little bit further than the beginning of your career in management consultancy, how did this sort of industry, I guess you could say the the formal business of management advice, come about in the first place?
5: Well, McKinsey, which is the oldest surviving management consultancy, has been around for nearly 100 years now. But the industry has been somewhat dormant for most of that time. It wasn't really until the 70s and 80s where it really started to, to ratchet up. You had large conglomerates wrestling with issues like portfolio composition, and, and you also had significant pressures coming in from globalization. And that really drove a boom in, in the business that has been continuing for decades now. If you look at the total combined revenues of the top three players in the industry, so that's BCG, Bain, and McKinsey. It was only about a billion dollars in 1990. Today, it's nearly 30 billion. And actually, a lot of that growth has come just in, in the past few years. In fact, the total revenue of those three companies has doubled in the past five years alone. And those three firms, they now employ something like 70,000 people between them, which is, which is very different to the sort of small outfits that were historically able
2: to fly under the radar. You talk at your piece about the sort of three trends that have increased the demand for advice. What are those trends?
5: Yeah, I mean, the first is that these firms have moved beyond simply just offering advice in in the form of chunky PowerPoint slides and and long to-do lists for clients and actually started working alongside them throughout the process of, of a strategic transformation. And that means projects now tend to be both a lot bigger uh, and also run for a lot longer. The second is branching out into, into digital transformation. So many companies today are terrified of becoming the next victim of digital disruption and, and have proved really very willing to, to pay top dollar for trusted consultants to help them work out issues like how to sell things online, how to automate processes, or even traditionally unglamorous things like fixing gummed up IT systems. And then the third and most recent trend that's been really driving growth in the industry is all things ESG. In particular, management consultants like McKinsey, Bain and BCG have built booming businesses advising clients on issues like decarbonization. Uh, And that's only going to keep growing as those efforts continue to accelerate in the coming years.
2: Okay. So McKinsey, Bain and BCG have all been booming. You've got this sort of emerging triumvirate Why do you think they also keep falling foul of these sort of bad headlines of late? You would think that they've been kept busy enough with the sort of more above board work. What's going on there? Yeah, so
5: in in the scheme of things, this is an industry that is relatively young uh, and it's expanded very quickly in the last few years without necessarily developing the kinds of governance and and risk controls that you'd see in, in more mature areas of professional services like, say, accountancy or law. And I think that has simply meant that they haven't been able to keep tabs on on what's happening right across their
2: large partnerships. Okay, Tom, we don't like to exhaust our first time Money Talks guests. So we're going to take a break and we'll hear from you again later in the show to get your thoughts on how the industry can be reformed. Thanks, Mike. Speak to you in a bit. Now, before we get into how the industry can and should be reformed, we should look first at how it went awry. To do that, I spoke with the New York Times journalists Walt Bogdanich and Mike Forsyth. They're the authors of a book out this week called When McKinsey Comes to Town. Mike, Walt, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You've taken a very keen interest in McKinsey and your new book is getting a lot of attention right now. But tell us a little bit about the process that went into this. Why did you choose McKinsey over, say, you know, any of the other consulting firms out there?
0: McKinsey is different, I think, from its competitors because the name is more prestigious. You know, if you're liking McKinsey to an automobile manufacturer, you know, they would be the the Porsche of the crowd. And I think that what you get is the cream of the crop of intellectual heft. McKinsey's, as we found, I think looking over many years at the company, probably its most successful attribute is its ability to recruit the best and brightest. The number of Rhodes scholars that flock to McKinsey uh, is, is substantial, dozens and dozens over the last few years. And so you're getting some of the smartest people in the world who will you know, relentlessly look at your problems at a company to a degree that maybe your own workers won't and and bring an outside perspective. So that's why I think a, a CEO might look at McKinsey instead of one of its competitors. It's it's the name, it's the prestige, and it's the, the people that they
2: have. I was really struck by how many people quoted in the book and mentioned in the book as sort of young employees were sort of seemingly doing it for the almost sort of idealistic reasons. People who really seemed to believe that if they joined McKinsey, they could do something positive to change the world. How do you think it developed that reputation initially, that ability to appeal to, as you say, you know, Rhodes scholars, young, intelligent people, because it's so far from the sort of reputation now?
1: Well, there's so much competition for these high caliber students. And so McKinsey wanted to be able to separate itself from the pack, from the Googles or the big investment banks that are trying to recruit them. And so you know, they, they decided that one way to do that was to offer the possibility of, of being able to make a difference, a positive difference in society. You can make a lot of money, but you can also do it in a way that you can be proud of. The problem there becomes that when these very smart people see what's actually happening and what McKinsey is actually doing, they become disillusioned, some become angry, and some thankfully decided to reach out to us and gave us the, the foundation for our book.
2: You also highlight some of the, uh, well, you know, a large part of the book is about the scandals that have brought the most attention to uh, McKinsey in in recent years. We could start with a couple, the the work in uh, China and Saudi Arabia, two things. if, If you haven't read much about McKinsey, you may
0: well have read about those things. Tell us a little bit about what happened there let's start with china so mckinsey's been in china in the mainland since the mid 1990s and it came in there with a wave of foreign you know call it european and american firms that rushed into china especially after the accession to the wto and it rode that wave it's hard to fault their work then in some ways because the chinese clients needed them they didn't have any western know-how that was mckinsey's forte to pass knowledge to these companies The problem is that they started working with some of the marquee state-owned companies in China. And these are, you know, essentially instruments of the Chinese government. Their heads are picked by the organization, Department of the Communist Party. And when China made a hard turn under Xi Jinping starting about 10 years ago, you know, McKinsey doubled down and McKinsey started advocating in promoting some of uh, the country's policies, such as its Belt and Road policy, expanding out um, Chinese enterprises around the world. Some of the companies it worked for, and we point out one in particular, China Communications Construction, they're the company that was building the artificial islands in the South China Sea, which is really helping to militarize that area. And at the same time, McKinsey was working for the Pentagon, whose goals are very, very different. So that's one problem. McKinsey also is in many ways become native to China, and that's understandable in one way, but it also makes them blind to the image that they projected.
2: And McKinsey's work with the Saudi
0: government certainly has come under a lot of scrutiny. Again, like with China, McKinsey's brought in a lot of the elites from Saudi society, so that people who work at McKinsey in the Riyadh office, for example, in many ways, they're patriotic Saudis, very loyal to the House of Saud, and those goals of that regime... Sometimes are very antithetical to commonly held uh, beliefs uh, in in Europe, the United States, and all over the world about human rights. And one area is obviously with jailing dissidents. And we get into a lot of detail in the chapter about a PowerPoint slide that McKinsey made that identified some of the influential people on social media like Twitter who were critical of the Saudi government. And after that PowerPoint slide was produced. McKinsey said it was only for internal use, but it certainly got out because we got a copy. One of those outspoken people uh, had two of his brothers arrested. And so, um, again, McKinsey's work in Saudi Arabia bolsters the power, the effectiveness of an authoritarian regime, just like in China and just like in some other authoritarian regimes around the world.
2: Of course, McKinsey is an American company. Did you find that the lapses you think occurred overseas also occurred closer to home?
1: One of the most surprising discoveries that we made was the idea that McKinsey would actually establish a profit center for a- addictive products. They surely had to understand, being you know, savvy management consultants, how that would appear if the word got out that they were doing it. And for a long time, it didn't. And what they were doing was helping opioid companies sell opioids in the middle of an opioid epidemic when tens of thousands of people were dying. They were pushing vaping products at a time when it was widely known that teenage non-smokers were vaping and becoming addicted. And most of all, and most disturbing of all, was their work for more than a half a century on behalf of tobacco companies, which is the most lethal consumer product in history. To McKinsey's credit, under public media pressure, they decided to change how they pick clients and they should be recognized for that. The person who pushed that and argued on behalf of it was Kevin Sneeder, the managing partner. And what did he get in return? He was voted out of office and now works at Goldman Sachs. Now it's also true that they've given the opportunity to individuals to opt out of working for companies that they feel are immoral or, or behaving in ways that are inappropriate. But the problem is that you know, this is pushing down the responsibility down to lower levels, allowing the upper levels to continue to make profits. And so if somebody young decides to opt out of working there, There was always somebody else to come in and and, and fill that responsibility, fill that job. What sort of went wrong here? Because
2: you have a company that I think several decades ago people would have recognized as a sort of relatively normal business consultancy, and it's now got all these headlines. Where was the sort of change?
1: I think it grew too fast. Its business model was flawed. It was built on the basis of a law firm structure, a partnership. And that was fine when it was smaller and people knew each other, but as it grew and it expanded overseas, this partnership model did not work anymore effectively in the sense that individual consultants had such enormous latitude to make decisions that they went and made them. And there was no proper oversight, no proper risk assessments. And I think that contributed to the problems.
2: So there's a meme depicting McKinsey as Anakin Skywalker. I'm not going to explain the the exact details of the meme here. Any of our listeners can look it up. But anyone familiar with the story of Star Wars will know that that is not, shall we say, a very flattering comparison to make. How does a company pull back its reputation from that sort of morass?
1: I think it's been surprising to Mike and me that many companies continue to hire them Many government agencies continue to hire them even at a time when McKinsey is paying millions of dollars to settle charges, to settle government investigations into their behavior and pushing opioids. The question of whether they are going to change and how they're responding to this is an interesting one. As I pointed out, they have changed their policies, but only time will tell whether they actually carry those out as they've uh, promised. A lot of these issues that have come up, they're ethical issues, and they're
0: easy for people to understand. And it should be also easy for McKinsey consultants to understand the reputational risks they take on when they work for bad actors, uh, people who sell addictive products, authoritarian governments. It doesn't take a Rhodes Scholar to figure that out.
2: Well, Walt, well, Mike, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Now, Alice Samaya, obviously McKinsey isn't happy about the accusations that Walt and Mike level in their book. They say it fundamentally misrepresents their work. Specifically when it comes to opioids, they gave us a statement, which I think, Samaya, you'll read.
4: Yes, I will. They said... We recognise that our work for opioid manufacturers, while lawful, fell short of the high standards we set for ourselves, and that we did not adequately acknowledge the epidemic unfolding in communities across the country. We do not work on any opioid-related business anywhere in the world.
2: And they also had a response to the South Africa allegations. Alice, do you want to read that?
3: Yes, of course. They wrote... We believe the charges filed against our South Africa office are meritless and we will defend against them. We publicly apologised and took action where we made mistakes. We did this because of our firm belief that it was the right thing to do. We cooperated with all authorities and shared everything we found from our own extensive internal investigations. We have globally upgraded our client and professional conduct policies and we substantially invested in our legal and compliance capabilities as we seek to set the standard for our profession.
2: But look, McKinsey's statement suggests that they do understand that some of their work merited apologies. After the break, we'll hear from Tom again to find out what should and could be done to fix the industry. But before that...
4: It's our favorite time in the show.
3: Where, yes, you've guessed it, we will in fact be telling you why it's a great time to take out a subscription to The Economist. You can read Tom's great reporting in the paper,
2: as well as our colleague Henry Kerr's special report looking at the state of the global economy, which might be of particular interest if you listen to last week's episode.
4: Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer.
3: And if you're already a subscriber, thank you so much. You should consider subscribing to our newsletters, Money Talks and The Bottom Line at economist.com slash newsletters.
2: And if you have any feedback or questions you'd like answered, do consider writing to us at podcasts at We'd especially like to hear your favourite statistics.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
2: Now, I want to bring Tom back in. Tom, hello. Hope you've had a good break. Hi again, Mike. So look, Walt and Mike paint a pretty damning picture of McKinsey, and the company's statements in response do suggest a sort of acknowledgement that there's been some work for which it needs to apologize. And in general, I'd say that consultants have been met by some sort of extreme skepticism from some quarters, not significantly different from the sort you get for investment banks. Do you think that the industry needs to be reformed or do you think this is just a sort of scapegoat for wider global shifts? Do you think people are sort of outsourcing their problems?
5: Look, I'd start by saying I think this idea that consultants are mere parasites on capitalism is a bit of a stretch. I think it would require you to believe in a kind of collective stupidity amongst all of the the leaders of the global economy that I think is hard to believe. I would say that there's really quite a necessary role that these firms play in, in two areas. The first is providing a second opinion. Uh, and now to a cynic, that might look like a cowardly CEO using these firms as a kind of human shield to get through controversial proposals like LAOS. But I think a more generous interpretation of that is that when it comes to high stakes strategic questions, it, it's worth paying for outside counsel. The second function, I think, that these firms perform is providing access to specialist knowledge that, that simply doesn't exist within a lot of organizations. They perform the same types of work across many clients in, in, in many industries, and doing so allows them to transmit productivity-enhancing practices around the global economy. I think it's fair to say that years of rapid growth have created conditions for disreputable behavior to thrive. I think a firm with a few hundred partners can get by on the basis of personal ties and and a sense of mutual duty. But I think a firm with a few thousand partners requires something different. And now we've heard from McKinsey and and the others that they've promised that they're not going to err again, and they've put in various new procedures and, and policies. But I think it's fair to say that more needs to be done.
2: So what do you think can be done to improve things here? Obviously, some people would start to talk about whether the industry needs to be more significantly regulated. What are your thoughts on that?
5: Yeah, I mean, the industry so far has escaped the kinds of regulations and, and formal rules that govern law or investment banking. Yeah, I'm not sure I would say we're at the point where that's required. But I do think there's reason to argue that a clear and, and transparent code of conduct at least is required, one that all responsible firms in in the industry will agree to adhere to. I mean, just a few parts of that could be, for one, I think agreeing that no company should ever be assisted with efforts to profit by harming consumers. I, I think also there's a lot of thorny questions to resolve around services provided to governments. I think advising regulators and the regulated in industries like healthcare undeniably creates the potential for conflicts of interest. I think also the revolving door that we see between consultancies and public sectors is something that's worth questioning. And in particular, I also think that advising governments and and state-owned enterprises in countries with high levels of corruption or a history of despotism is is something that really needs a, a long, hard
2: look. So I wanted to get down to the sort of crunchy business side question here, which is that many people around the world will look at these sort of headlines and say to themselves, wow, what terrible developments happening in the industry here. That's not going to be the case necessarily for every company and government in the world. They may occasionally see some of these headlines and think, oh, great, we could do with some of this advice, or they might see management consultants, you know, Working in favor of their clients, even if they're judged by a lot of people to be doing something unethical. Do you think this sort of stuff actually really negatively affects the business bottom line of a consultancy? Well, I think the fact
5: that they've grown so quickly over the past few years, right as these scandals have been coming to light, would suggest not. Uh, And I just add that I think it's true that sometimes businesses and, and governments need to make hard decisions around things like layoffs or offshoring that are painful but perhaps necessary. And sometimes I think they they benefit from having an advisor to be there and and to hold their hand and and also perhaps
2: to act as a bit of a human shield for them. And knowing what you know now, would you still have gone into consulting as your first career out of university?
5: Yeah, Mike, I I think I would have. I, you know, I think you learn so much in these kinds of organizations. Uh, you're exposed to all sorts of different areas of the business world, and you do get to work alongside really brainy people. And I think there's a reason that these kinds of firms continue to you know, feature at the top of rankings, like best places to work by Glassdoor and, and, and so on. So yeah, I, I, I think I would. and I'd also just add that I think doing that job perhaps helped me get this job, and I'm so delighted to be joining the team
2: at The Economist. See, there you go. That's the correct answer, Tom. And thank you very much for joining us. And we'll get you back on Money Talk soon. Thank you so much, Mike. So, Alice, Samaya, final thoughts? Do you regret not going into consulting or are you breathing a sigh of relief?
3: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I was mostly joking when I talked about management consultants sort of wanting to do good in the world and, and bankers not really caring. But it does seem as though we might have reached a point where there have been enough of these scandals that, as Tom suggests, you know, regulators might want to step in and sort of take a firmer grip on the industry. And, you know, I worked in finance while that was happening. And everyone had sort of come around to the idea that you had to put safeguards on the finance industry to stop it doing sort of bad things. And perhaps it's time for management consulting to get its own guardrails. I
4: think overall, I am happy with my life choices. They have brought me here to you uh, and The Economist. So so all is fine there. I think that the thing I'm really fascinated by is the internal incentives within these organisations. I mean, take McKinsey, it's not a listed firm. Uh, and so there aren't, the, the same pressures from shareholders to, you know, make you know, short-term profits. And yet there are still some fairly high-pressure environments and and interesting internal incentives that in some cases is leaning to behavior that the company is, is having to apologize for. And it's worth saying as well, though, that these incentives are probably not consistent across the organization due to its massive, sprawling size. I read a piece that we wrote a couple of years ago about McKinsey, and it essentially said that it needed to shrink. That would really help with the internal issues.
2: Yeah. And in anticipation of this show, I spoke to a couple of friends who are current consultants, uh, some who are former consultants. And I wanted to sort of get their view of the industry and where it was going wrong. And also, I think especially what they genuinely thought the value of it was. And, And one of the really interesting things that I heard back was somebody saying, he will hear occasionally from people who work in other companies who used to be management consultants. Oh, you know, I, I can't believe this guy uh, in a you know third different company has brought in these consultants to do X, Y, Z. You know, they're wasting huge amounts of money on this. And then he'll hear sometimes the exact opposite of that. He'll hear people say, oh, I wish I had a team from my days at McKinsey or Bain or BCG or wherever it was, where people really do, after they've left these companies, think very highly of the sort of analytical and organizational abilities of some of these consultants. So I found it fascinating that even within the ranks of former management consultants, you seemingly can't get a grip of exactly what value the industry is bringing to other businesses. And I think it's no wonder the rest of us are a little bit confused as to that if you can't even get a straight answer from people who've previously been in the industry.
4: Should we pivot to our stats of the week?
2: Brilliant, yes. So uh, I like a good violent market move. And my statistic of the week is 22.09%, which was the rise in Twitter's share price on Tuesday uh, as the news came out that it looks like Elon Musk will be buying the company at the uh, pre-agreed price after all. Clearly, investors really not expecting that immediately before it happened. It's unusual to see a, uh, a tech stock now very much strongly up. For the year to date, Twitter now more than 20% up.
3: Yes, it certainly is good news for Twitter shareholders. Although if you're invested in tech more broadly, it also seems to have taken a chunk out of Tesla share price. So you're probably not thrilled with Elon either way. My stat of the week this week is 4.1, which is the months of inventory of homes that are on the housing market in the US. That has jumped from a record low of just 2.1 months back in January of this year. And in the sort of history of the series of, of months of inventory, there's never been such a big shift in such a short time horizon. So obviously, as sort of rates have shot up, buyers have sort of totally retreated from the market. And that is leading to this sort of big increase in the amount of inventory that is for sale, which is in stark contrast to how the housing market has been for the last couple of years.
4: Okay, my stat of the week is based on some digging I've been doing into the British housing market this week. And I came across this amazing figure, which is that in 1988, on average, British households moved home every 10 years on average. In 2017, 30 years later, that had increased to once every 17 years, right? That's, That's a pretty big increase in immobility.
2: As someone who still currently doesn't have a fixed address, I'm into, I think, month six, month seven without a fixed permanent address, although that will be sorted this week. I don't have a lot of sympathy for these people who simply won't move. I think they should be moving around more. Our thanks this week go to Mike Forsyth and Walt Bogdanich.
3: And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Today's show was produced by Marie Keyworth.
4: Our editor was Kim Gittelson.
3: Our sound engineer is Nico Ralfast.
2: I'm Mike Bird. I'm
3: Simea Keynes. I'm Alice
2: Forward. And this is The Economist.